Hello, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of Adventures in Machine Learning. I'm one of your hosts, Michael Burke, and I'm joined by my co-host, Ben Wilson. And today we have a really, really exciting guest. I've been prepping for months now, not actually months, but a couple days, and um, going through everything he has on the internet, and it's really, really insightful and fascinating. So today we're going to be speaking with Dr. Avi Goldfarb. Uh, he's the Rotman Chair in Artificial Intelligence and Healthcare at the Rotman School of Management at UToronto. He's also a Chief Data Scientist at the Creative Destruction Lab, which has arguably the best name on the planet. And they essentially teach tech-related startups how to operate and scale. Uh, he's testified before the U.S. Senate, published many papers, and then when he's bored, he also does a little teaching on the side. So, Avi, what is something that our listeners should know about you that is not on your LinkedIn bio? So I grew up in Toronto, Canada, and then uh, in grad school, I was in Chicago. It was the late 90s, and um, I was an economist, and I was trying to figure out what industry I wanted to focus on. My second-year paper was about the beer industry. It was about the decline of Schlitz beer in the 1970s, and I was looking for my third-year paper, and my first idea was about advertising in the cigarette industry, and I had this moment saying, you know what? I don't want to be the beer and cigarettes guy. I want to study you know, the industries of the future. And uh, it was the late 90s, and there was this industry evolving that no one knew anything about, the internet. And so I decided to try to get my head around that, figuring no matter what I found, it would have to be new because no one knew anything. And, and that worked. And it landed me a job um, in the Business School of the University of Toronto. I spent the next 10 or so years studying the history of the internet, um, near history, but you know, trying to understand how that all evolved. And then um, in our lab in 2012, we saw this, it was the very first year of our lab. Um, it's a program for science-based startups. And we saw this company called Atomwise saying uh, they were using artificial intelligence for drug discovery. And if you jump back about 10 years ago, that just seemed insane. Okay, so the idea, we didn't really think about artificial intelligence the way we do today. And to use it to discover new molecules um, in order to cure disease was totally out there. The next year, we had a couple more AI companies coming through our lab. This is all because being based in Toronto, our computer science department is, you know, has many of the world's leaders in artificial intelligence and machine learning, um, most notably Jeff Hinton. And so, and then the next year, we had this flood of companies, something like 20 or 25 of them, coming through our lab calling themselves artificial intelligence companies. And at that point, my co-authors and I, Jay Agrawal and Joshua Gans, we'd all made our careers studying, you know, studying the internet. They, they also you know, were looking in the 1990s, just like me, and thinking about the, uh, the technology to study. We all decided, hey, you know what? This, this is the next thing. It's really exciting, and let's try to get our heads around that. And so we took our economist lens to think through what this technology could really do. Interesting. Okay, so you recently published a paper on general purpose technologies or GPTs. Um, do you think that ML will be a general purpose technology? Uh, yes, as part of a suite of technologies around data science. So machine learning is the, the, you know, we, the paper is called, is machine learning a general purpose technology? And honestly, when we started the paper, we really hoped the answer would be yes, given my investments in machine learning, but it's academic research, and sometimes things don't go exactly as you plan. And what we learned uh, over the course of writing that paper is, um, yes, machine learning is a general purpose technology, but it's it in and of itself uh, isn't everything. It's only useful if you uh, combine it with um, a whole bunch of data-related tools. And so you know, maybe you want to aggregate it and call it data science, maybe you want to call it machine learning, uh, maybe you want to call it data processing, but all those things together represent uh, what's called a general purpose technology, which is a, you know, there's these handful of technologies that have had an outsized impact on the economy for a particular set of reasons, um, like the steam engine and electricity uh, and semiconductors. So one thing that you bring up in your book in the intro, which resonated with me, in a way that I wasn't expecting. Because um, there's a lot of books out there that talk about like, oh, this is what AI is, you know, is or, it, you know, how it can be used and what the future of it is. And 
a lot of books I've read, they, they don't really resonate with somebody who's been doing it for a while, but yours, uh, just blew me away with this, this, uh, this presentation that you had about a company called Verifin and how that blew you away when you're looking at what they were doing. You're like, this is the leader in AI in Canada. Like the, this is the, the unicorn that came out of our country. Uh, but the way that you presented that with talking through, yes, it's this suite of general purpose tools that, that can be put together, but there's that other part that made it actually useful for them, which is it's a real world use case that benefits from all of those tools. So do you see the sort of the democratization of disruptive applications of technology in a general sense? Is that where the, you think the future is going to be going? Like more people are going to figure that out? Um, I think there's this handful of uh, companies or applications where there's this beautiful combination of fortuitous circumstances that, well, we had the data in place. Uh, we already had the um, software-related processes to use the prediction that came out of the AI. Um, and it was just this one missing link on figuring out um, some prediction score. And so Verifin, uh, they predict financial fraud. They were in that sweet spot. It was this, really everything else was already in place. And there was this one missing link and you just had to find a missing link and, and it became an extraordinarily uh, valuable company and a nice uh, Canadian success story. Um, but I think the that's not where most of the action is going to be 10, 15 years from now, but I caveat it with 10, 15 years from now, which is that uh, in the short term, right? Well, it's always easier to do things where everything else is set up. <laughs> and so, um, you know, for companies looking through, you know, where's the short-term opportunity for me? It's going to be, okay, well, do you already have software in place? Are you already doing some kind of prediction? Maybe it's even a, a machine related prediction process, but not AI. And can you bring in AI and make it better? Okay. Um, but, you know, the, the thing about low-hanging fruit is it gets picked pretty quickly. Um, yep. And the um, transformative opportunities for the economy, uh, going back to you know, Michael's point about general purpose technologies, the transformative opportunities for the economy are when you can take the prediction and actually serve an entirely new market and do things in an entirely new way. And so general purpose technologies, the reason electricity and the steam engine and these other technologies have had an outsized impact on the economy it's not that um, the innovation itself was so great. It's the innovation led to other innovations, which in turn created this positive feedback loop between the producing and using industries. So in electricity, you had innovations in you know, end uses like electric motors and light bulbs that in turn led to innovations in the way we say design buildings. Once you have electric light, you can make much bigger buildings with more interior space. But then once you did that, you needed new innovation upstream in terms of power sources, in terms of ways to get the electricity from the power source into the, into the factories, into the buildings. And so this positive feedback loop led to the outsized impact. And what um, is so exciting about prediction, about prediction machines is the potential for this positive feedback loop uh, going way beyond where Verifin was, going way beyond, okay, well, we already have our workflow. Let's not mess with it. And let's just make it a little bit better um, to let's sort of totally blow up our old workflow in order to deliver an entirely new kind of value uh, to our customers or an entirely new experience to our employees and our suppliers. So how does that conversation go nowadays when your lab brings in a new, maybe perhaps not a startup because startups kind of, I think nowadays they have this sort of grokked, they know we need to start from the ground up with supporting this this technology because it's going to be part of our business regardless of what we're doing. But for a Canadian company that might yeah. come in or U.S.-based company yeah. that has been around for 150 years and they're maybe 25 years behind the times with, res with respect to adopting technology, how do you have that conversation with them aside from just saying, here, read this book. This will this will make make it all Correct. make sense. No, that makes a lot of sense. So we we don't start with data, we don't start with AI or prediction or anything. We start with mission. Okay. So what are you actually trying to do as a company? What does it mean for you 
to serve your customers well. So we start there. And then we say, well, think about your standard operating procedures. Think about all the things you do as a company. How many of those things are about serving the mission? And how many of those things are about compensating for the fact that you don't really deliver what you're supposed to? And once companies get a sense of, well, the various ways they're not delivering on their mission, then we can start the bigger picture strategic conversation about, uh, well, okay, well, how do we use prediction machines to deliver real, real value? So for example, um, think about the best airports in the world, those airports that are rated the best in the world, Seoul, Incheon, Singapore, whatever it might be. They're multi-billion dollar airports. They're spectacular. They have great shopping, great restaurants, amazing hotels, some of them have theaters and golf courses and greenhouses and all sorts of crazy stuff going on in that airport. And then you think, well, that's got to be the ultimate in in the airport experience. But think about how the super rich fly. They don't fly like that at all. Mm -hmm. A private terminal looks like a shed. A private terminal, they just walk right through. Because why? Because no one wants to spend time at an airport. (laughs) Right? The ultimate in service of an airport is you arrive at the airport and you walk right on the plane and you take off. There's no time spent in the airport at all. And why do you spend time in the airport? Okay, so then, so that's, you're not delivering on your mission. Like even Seoul Incheon, the mission is to ensure smooth air transportation. And almost all of the billions and billions of dollars in architecture at the airport have nothing to do with ensuring smooth air transportation. It's about compensating people for the fact that they didn't get smooth air transportation. Mm-hmm. So, get that conversation going. Then you say, well, how would prediction help? Let's say you had a good prediction about how long it would take to get to the airport through security. And you could get people to walk right on the plane. How does your industry look different? Are there opportunities to deliver that in parts of uh, your company and not others? So you think through mission first, standard operating procedures second, to what extent do those um, support or really just compensate for the lack of delivery of the mission, and then we talk about prediction. Then once we have a sense of what those predictions are, then we dig into, okay, is this feasible? And when we talk about, is this feasible? It's all about data. So mm-hmm. uh, once we get a sense of what predictions you want to make, then we think through well, what data do you have available? What data is available in the market? Uh, is there enough in order to build the predictions you want to build? Um, and then you, then the last piece, I guess, is some subtleties on, uh, the technical aspects of the prediction machines they're building. But that's really, that's at the end. Like at the beginning, you got to think big picture in order to say, what well, can you deliver value in a new way? You just perfectly succinctly summarized a, a massive part of what this podcast is all about with Michael okay. and I. Is talking I would say about, it's like 95% of this podcast. <laughs> is is, that is not focusing on the technical aspects. Like anybody can do that. I mean, when you get to extreme scales where you're like, hey, I want to be able to predict each individual passenger who's coming in, what time should they book an Uber so that they're going to get to the airport just at the right time? That gets kind of crazy. You need specialized you know, humans to yeah. build that infrastructure. But for the other 99% of use cases that are out there, anybody can learn it that has a, somewhat of a technical background. The challenge of any sort of applied prediction usage is finding that right use case absolutely what should we build why should we build it how do we monitor it and then how do we approach that through sort of the development process of agile to say this is a a living breathing entity when we create this this tool set that we need to change constantly it's not hey we have fraud prediction it's it's out there we're done it'll run forever and yeah. we'll just make money off of it. It's like, that's not how it works. It has to evolve. And absolutely, I, uh, we should have just re- like record what you just said for the last couple of minutes and make that like oh. the summary for the podcast. Cause it was perfect. Um, okay. It's recorded. I imagine. <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> but the, uh, one sort of thing that, that made me think when you were talking about the disruptive nature of electricity to come at it from, a purely theoretical sort of negative perspective, I would like to hear your thoughts on uh, the disruptive nature of something like electricity. When that came out, 
people had to, through necessity, figure out ways of generating more power. So by extension, we start figuring out, okay, what are the best ways to create a lot of heat so that we can boil water and spin turbines? Uh, what's the cheapest way to, to make something really hot? Let's take the top off of that mountain, mine it for coal ruins the environment there we ruin you know the air co2 levels increase when we apply that sort of thought process to disruptive technologies with prediction machines what do you see as the downsides of this uh paradigm shift that you think that you you and we both agree is happening in real time right now and 15 years from now it'll be commoditized do you see any downsides to it um there's lots of risks. Maybe down from there. What could go wrong? Mm-hmm. Well, that's a fun question to ask. So uh, there's lots that could go wrong. Uh, I should caveat this with, in general, I'm uh, I'm quite optimistic of the potential of the technology. Um, not necessarily because the technology is so great, but I think a lot of our current processes are pretty bad. Yeah. So uh, there's, there's lots of hope that we can do better. Um, but what could go wrong? So... If we um, build prediction machines uh, that affect individual people, like predict whether you should get credit or predict whether you should get hired or things like that, um, and we build those machines off our current human decision-making processes, uh, whatever biases there are in the current system are going to get embedded and potentially exaggerated, but at least embedded in this new system. Okay, So the thing that could go wrong, number one, is the... um, now, it's not, to be clear, it's, the issue is not that the machines are going to discriminate because humans discriminate. So, yes, the machines yep. are going to discriminate. That's not worse than our current situation. What's worse than the current situation is they can discriminate at scale. Yes. And so even if there are humans who don't discriminate, maybe you know, that will help the people who are discriminated against. Once uh, this gets embedded in software at scale, then poten- there's potential for discrimination at scale. So a sort of set of worries around discrimination. Um there's a second set of worries around um, the uh, what's called the future of work. Okay, so um, if machines are doing all um, lots of things that humans do, and effectively the aspects of our work that give us pleasure, it's an important caveat there. Not that they're doing our work, but the, the things that we uh, that provide meaning in our lives and, and give us pleasure, then uh, we should worry if the machines are substituting for humans. Okay. Mm-hmm. So, a, um, is there work left that will give us meaning in life? Okay. Um, and then the third or a third set of worries are around inequality, okay, which is if a handful of companies um, control the machines or a handful of people own them, uh, or if the using prediction machines is something that requires a lot of skill and taking advantage of that technology, then we, we might see an increase in inequality. And so, so three categories, we get discrimination, uh, we get um, increased inequality, increased concentration of power, and we get um, uh, we get sort of lack of meaning or lack of work. Okay. Now, those are the words, um, <laughs> but I'm actually optimistic in all three. Okay. Um, so I'm optimistic on discrimination. Uh, this is the last chapter of, of our book, Power and Prediction, which is if we think about um, you know, if all we're doing with prediction machines is taking our current processes, uh, you know, extracting the human prediction, dropping into machine prediction, but keeping everything the same, then we have massive reasons to worry about discrimination. Yes. Machine discrimination. But the thing is, machines are audible. And so we can figure out, we can identify the discrimination. And in principle, we can improve it. This is um, Sendable Anathan, who's a professor at the University of Chicago, and um, uh, he won the MacArthur Genius Award for you know for being a genius. Um, and you know, he early in his career he was studying offline discrimination. So you might remember there was this study where they sent resumes, some with the names Emily and Greg, and some of it with the names Jamal and Lakeisha. That was his that was his study. Mm-hmm. And he said we figured out that people discriminate, employers were discriminating, and it took thousands of dollars and thousands of hours to send that resume study. And even after that, after the fact, we didn't know which employers were discriminating. We could just say on average people were discriminating. Fast forward 15 years in his research career, 
and he's studying whether uh, there's discrimination in um, in medicine, in particular in uh, machine learning and medicine. And they ran a simulation. He describes it as taking them about two hours. And they found that there was discrimination in the machine learning algorithm. And they shut it down and improved it. Right? So instead of thousands of hours and thousands of dollars, it was a few hours work and not really such a big deal. And so there's reasons to hope that we can identify discrimination. And then we can say, well, maybe our current processes aren't so good. And we can think through how to build better processes in order to reduce discrimination going forward. So the as long as we think, this is an important caveat, as long as the people who control these machines care about reducing discrimination or recognize it as, um, as something to pay some attention to, there's reasons to be optimistic because partly because getting rid of discrimination on us humans is pretty hard, even for those who want to. So there, you know, there's reasons to be optimistic that something could be better. Yeah, and the incentive to care can come from different areas. I think it's unlikely that Mark Zuckerberg is going to develop the biggest heart in the world and suddenly make ethical AI a gold standard at, at Meta. But public uh, policy, public pressure, there are many ways to get a company or a person to care about being ethical. So I think it's not just up to our tech overlords. Um, uh, you know, careful and thinking through. I suspect most individuals who you think wouldn't care actually really do. Um, it's just a hard problem. And, um, but I, you know, the, the general point takeaway is yes, the forces can come from customers, they can come from suppliers, they can come from employees, and they can come from the, the management and the owners of the company all over the place and government for that matter. Yeah, that's, that's actually my prediction for two of your three worries is that eventually that'll be solved through legislation because it's going to be so commoditized uh, across all industries, across humanity in general. It's, I think it's inevitable that this is going to be widely used uh, as sort of a meta concept throughout uh, our existence and systematically, I wouldn't say eliminating, but reducing that bias through intelligent design and review, whether it come from automated tooling, which there are, there's some pretty impressive work that's being done these days in evaluating that. Um, but when I was working with, with companies in the field at Databricks, when I, when I used to do that, what Michael does now, um, reviewing a lot of ML use cases that, that are in production, you kind of look at the feature set and you're like, hang on, like you do have gender in here. Uh, I see that of your, your users. Should you have that in here? And they're like, well, we can, we can try removing it. I'm like, yeah, let's do that, please. Let's see what happens. And the model falls apart. The accuracy is garbage. And, you know, explaining it to him like, well, the accuracy is bad because that was your decision factor with all of your validation data that you're doing. But let's, let's release this on a small subset of your actual user base and see what happens. Yeah. And it doesn't improve. I mean, it's better than the validation error that we are getting, but it's not this market improvement that we are expecting. And then so, all of a sudden you realize that there's so much, so much of the data that is collected is in itself through the nature of its collection biased in the fact that, okay, it was, it was deciding this way because you collect different data based on gender. And there's different activity that's measured and that volume of that data from your users is different between men and women. And if you can um, redesign your processes to you know, try to actually improve what you're doing, you can make a big make a big difference. Let me give you an example. There's this paper uh, by Lindsay Raymond, Danielle Lee, and, um, and Peter Bergman called um, uh, Hiring as, Exploit as Exploration, or something along those lines. And here's the idea. They worked with a big company that hired lots of people. Um, but these were very desirable jobs. They had lots and lots of applicants for every job. And the company had historically hired um, men and had very few people from underprivileged uh, groups. Or, uh, and so 
what did the what did their current processes do when they said, okay, well let's let's have an AI predict who we would hire. Um, the AI did a pretty good job in predicting which white men were going to succeed in the company. Mm-hmm. Um, but the predictions for women say, some of the predictions were bad or not bad, but they were just high variance. There was just yep. so the, the prediction came back saying we don't know if this person's going to do well in the company. And because it was hard to get a job in the company, because they said no to most people, if a prediction for somebody came in that said, well, it's highly uncertain, then the normal process would be to say, well, forget it. We're not going to hire that person. And so if you embed that system, you know, if you embed the AI in their current hiring process, their current hiring system, it would just exacerbate any discrimination they already had. But they realized, well, the reason they weren't hiring those people isn't because they thought they were bad or good, because they just didn't know. There's an easy solution to that. Hire some people and learn. And so uh, the company uh, effectively deliberately hired people who had high upside potential, but they didn't know if if they would succeed or not, and invested in learning. And through that process, over time, discrimination went way down. They figured out which people from underrepresented groups were the right people for the company. And in the long run... um, you know, the experiment was a success, and they just sort of, they had to rethink their hiring system in order to use uh, machine learning tools well in um, in order to reduce discrimination. That's a, an amazing story, and that that resonates so well with some of the the tactics that I've had to employ with certain use cases in industry, where <laughs> you do something like remove all of the potential bias. Uh, from you know feature training data or even your your feature evaluation data, and you know somebody uses you know standard practices They're like well I need to validate it on existing data, and they look at they just they have blinders on just myopically focusing entirely on a metric score an error loss. Like, no 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 we need to do scorched earth here. Let's run an experiment. Let's be scientists for a moment and yeah. let's collect some new data and that process in and of itself i've seen dozens of times in multiple different industries where people people's eyes sort of open for the first time where they start thinking about their business differently like maybe we shouldn't be making decisions based on this data and that maybe our decision to even use this data or even use this use case or think about our business and our entire industry in this way is flawed. And it's, I've seen it a couple of times where uh, very big companies start thinking differently about, well, maybe we shouldn't even be in this space. Like we're trying to optimize this problem and make money in this way. And in the process of discovering and evaluating how flawed that system was, they uncover some new thing where they're like, hey, we're we're gonna try out this other thing. And then they realize, whoa, there's a lot of money to be made here. Let's shift gears here. I saw it very famously with a, a a startup company in New York City. I can't disclose who they are, but they they used to have an app <coughs> that almost nobody used. But one of the benefits that they had was that other apps paired with them for data collection. And instead of them charging for this app service, which they were, they are, their user base just wasn't really growing because nobody really cared. But that data pipeline and them being able to use what they knew how to do really well, which is distributed computing, you know, geolocation data and figuring out what motivates people to go to to physical locations on this planet and then compiling that, anonymizing it and selling it to other companies. All of a sudden, their revenue went up, you know, well over one million percent in less than one year. And it was all through like our optimization for finding new users with ML is not good and then looking right. at their data and saying hang on this is actually valuable all right that's fascinating um it the the you know you, and that's another story on just thinking through we think about where the opportunities lie it's about uh, rethinking what the business model is uh and being consistent with well, what can we do better than anybody else um and how uh Sometimes it's going to be how can we use a prediction, and how sometimes it's going to be how can we build, you know, help others build predictions in order to do things better. 
it seemed like that that organization was sitting on a gold mine and with the correct technical implementation they they could actually leverage that gold mine so what are some gold mines that you think will be prevalent in the next 5 10 15 years for ai companies okay i think there's um three categories of big opportunities so category one are um, a lot of the cutting edge tools require massive amounts of compute. And so uh, companies, you know, the handful of companies that have built uh, incredible compute facilities, whether it's Amazon and Google and Microsoft and others, they're going to do well. They're going to be able, they're going to be the underlying infrastructure for uh, for much of the future. And that's, that's the old story that in the gold rush, people that make the most money are the people making the tools. Okay, so... Uh, was, that's category one. Category two are those who have data related to the, the story you just told. And not just any data. It has to be unique data, distinctive data. Um, so just having lots of data in and of itself isn't valuable if the predictions that you can make from your data are you know, not that much better than the predictions that somebody else could make uh, with other data that's out there publicly or easily available. And the the industry that that resonates most closely with, you know, for me, is in the context of health data and hospitals. I've had many conversations with hospitals who say, we have this amazing data on all our patients, okay? And we know that health data is valuable, and so it must be worth a fortune on the open market. And you kind of have to have this conversation with them to point out, well, every other hospital in the country has roughly the same data. And so there's, for most hospitals, there's nothing particularly distinct about their patient data or their medical imaging data, or whatever it might be, even if you get over the privacy and the HIPAA concerns and all that, because you can think about anonymity and other things like that, uh, that for any one hospital, the marginal value of their data is often quite small. Even though in aggregate, if we had data from all the hospitals, it could be extraordinary. And there's people working on trying to solve that problem. Um, most notably, I guess, uh, Zia Obermeyer is a professor at, at Berkeley. Oh, and with Sendel, Melanathan, who we already mentioned earlier. Okay. Um, and then the third category of opportunities, which I think is where most of the opportunities are going to lie, uh, are around complements to predictions. Okay. So what are the things that you can't do because you don't have a prediction? So, you know, I told the airport story, but maybe, uh, thinking more about healthcare, um, there's lots of pharma companies that have patents, that have treatments for stuff. And, um, a constraint for many of them is identifying patients. Now imagine, especially for treatments that uh, aren't for, you know, that only a handful of people, or not a handful, but you know, millions instead of tens of millions or hundreds of millions of people uh, need. Now, if you had an excellent prediction technology, you had a prediction machine that could diagnose well. And in particular, it would diagnose the thing you have a patent for. Then your patent becomes much, much more valuable you're providing the treatment. So as the pharma company, you may not even be using machine learning at all. But it turns out the machine learning is um, creating a feed of customers for the product that you have, um, you know, that you have control of and that you can make money off. And I anticipate over the next five to 10 years, we're going to find more and more of these things where, oh, you know what? If only I had this prediction, I could extract value from this other part of the value chain. But because I don't know, because I lack information, I can't extract that value. So that's where, so there's these three categories. There's the building the infrastructure. There's having distinctive data. But I think that for most organizations, they're going to be benefiting by, through that third category of finding the right complement. To piggyback on the, the healthcare analogy or use case that you mentioned, do you ever think that trust will be at such a level where legislators in countries will actually allow companies or researchers that aren't just doing pure academic research, but actually to take data sets that right now we're not legally allowed to join. Uh, stuff like clinical results with full sequence genome data across the entire population to say, let's actually figure out what drugs to build that will change DNA in such a way uh, or provide some sort of RNA 
vaccine like thing that you can take that says, hey, we're no longer going to have Alzheimer's problems because of the 30 different causes of that. We have a, a targeted drug for each of those 30 different things. And oh. we know you're the one who needs to take this one. So here you go. Wow. So there's like, you know, 50 different opportunities in what you described and maybe you know, 300 different challenges. Uh, so the on trust and privacy, so there are good reasons to worry about healthcare data being shared, okay, um, in terms of um, that information can easily be exploited uh, to hurt those who have bad health or predict bad health. So there's, um, and you, know, you can legislate all you want um, and say it's illegal, but it's, I think that's going to be very, very hard to manage well at scale. So I think there's real reasons to worry there. So what are the, um, but at the same time, there is a trade-off between privacy and innovation. Okay, so this is something um, I was doing a fair bit of work on uh, just as you know, we started to think through the challenges in, in privacy and online advertising about 10 years ago, um, that data is incredibly useful. And privacy regulation is about the restriction of data flows, typically. And the restriction of data flows uh, means less innovation in almost, you know, at least in practice, in almost all cases. So, so how do we reconcile those, you know, these these two challenges? Um, piece number one is there are types of legislation that could be win-win. The uh, arguably the most successful privacy regulation in the history of the world, or at least you know in the United States, is the Fair Credit Reporting Act in the 70s. You may not think of that as privacy regulation. That's what it was. It said there's a central a depository where um, you know where firms put the data they have about your credit, and you can go look and see if it's accurate. Mm -hmm. And that's a win-win for everybody it, because you can look and correct mistakes. That helps the companies, and you can see what people are saying about you, and that helps you. Now, um, I guess I said it's a win-win for everybody. I guess it's not. You know, it's a bigger win for the people who are low credit risk <laughs> you know, uh, than than high. But uh, but people were being excluded in the old days anyway, and they didn't know why, and, and now they do. So that was like, so thinking through uh, on the legislative side, what kind of things can we build and enforce that enable at least somewhat improved trust and still have innovation use of data? Category number one. So there's a regulatory innovation, and then there's technological innovation, which is um, there's an increasingly effective set of tools that allow you to use data um, while maintaining privacy. Differential privacy being the, the biggest headline there. Now, it's to be clear, all of those tools, the data is going to be less useful and accurate than it would be if you didn't have to use those tools. It, you know, it adds layers of, of bureaucracy, it adds layers of complication, and it, you know, by definition, mixes stuff up. Um, but it's, you know, once you have millions or billions of observations, maybe it doesn't, sometimes it doesn't matter that much. You can still innovate in creative ways. So I think there's, um, it, you might take is there are, uh, you know, some of those are, leg, there's legislative fixes, there's technological fixes. I don't think we're ever going to get to a point where all of our data, all of our health data is going to be, you know, in some you know, central place where companies can go look and, and figure stuff out. But I, I think that is good. And my vision of, you know, I can't think of a utopian rather than dystopian world where all of our data is in, in the same place uh, and easily accessible to anybody. Health data in particular. Yeah, with health data, I think there's only a couple of organizations around the world that have an opportunity. Uh, one that our, our company works with, uh, NIH in the UK, they can join that data because um, they have all of it and they can anonymize it and basically put like, hey, if you have access to this data, you need to go through extremely rigorous training, but also you basically need a clearance so, because it is secret data about your citizens. And they're making interesting headroads into that. But once they collect enough of that information, it's pretty fascinating with what you can do about it. They sell that, like, the models effectively and 
an anonymized scrub data set to pharmaceutical companies saying, hey, you should look into this because we have 800,000 data points where there's a correlation here that we think there's causation. So, And there's already been drugs that have been developed in uh, U.S. pharmaceuticals that are also customers of ours based on that data. It's pretty fascinating stuff. Like Regeneron has made some some amazing drugs based on that. That's amazing because I've heard... Um, I was wondering about that last commercial piece. So, you know, uh, here in Ontario, where I'm sitting, uh, we have amazing data. It's a public healthcare system, just like uh, in the UK. And so, in principle, we have a data set with every data point on every citizen or every resident of the country, of the province. Amazing, 50 million people. Every interaction with the healthcare system. Um, they made amazing progress on structuring that data for the purposes of billing. You know, that's incentive, well incentivized. Uh, they made pretty good progress for structuring that data for the purposes of some research. And they built a very, very big wall on any commercial application for data. Mm-hmm. And so, um, you know, there's, there's reasons to do that. Uh, but that public investment isn't going to lead to a commercial industry if it's against the law for you right. that data. Um, and I'm, uh, the UK is doing that. That's amazing. Go. It's very restrictive, yeah. and there's no okay. possible way that you can tie back any of the data to any individual human. Like it's flat out impossible uh, because of how they handle that security. But it's it's using highly sensitive data for the benefit of, of at least some parts of humanity. Uh, the other issue with something like that, when we're talking about taking clinical data merging it to genetic data any geographical region in the world is going to be highly biased right it's like hey if you're uh of northern european descent you're set uh for that data if you come from anywhere else you're an outlier uh just due to the the genetic background of people that currently are under the nih which is unfortunate, you know, that it's not something that eventually humanity can get to the point where let's do altruistic things with, you know, making sure that healthcare is available and accessible and, and you know, sort of fully thought out and implemented around the world. But one privacy thing that, that your discussion made me think about was even with, I wouldn't say it's laws, just sort of restrictions around data and companies trying to do the right thing. A company that I used to work for, we had information about uh, all of our users. We knew, you know, if you had the right level of access, you could join this metadata set that gives, you know, browsing history, purchase history, shipping and receiving to, you couldn't get billing information. You don't want to join that, but you could find out a snapshot of this person, uh, any user. And in the consumption side, inside the data warehouse, did stuff like scrub out people's first and last names, scrubbed out their address. We didn't want any of that data going anywhere because it's unethical to use any of that information. So there were certain joins that you couldn't do across different data warehouses. We found that with just a little bit of digging into the... IP addresses that we were getting yeah. associated with every request that was coming into browsing or anytime they interacted with the website or the app, you could triangulate very easily and find out somebody's home address, like exceptionally easy. And then it's a simple Google search to figure out who that person is that lives there. And you'd be like, hey, I know this person's name. It's obviously this person. They're buying you know, clothes in this size for this gender. There's only one woman who lives at that house of that age range. Yeah. So that's her. What are your thoughts or what, how do you discuss things like that, like potential nefarious uses of the explosion of data collection to uh, the companies that come talk to you? So more than, more than company, like, uh, here's, here's where we talk about my MBA class. So first thing is know the law. Okay, the law around privacy and the use of data has been changing. Um, you got to figure out if what you're using is based on some global uh, 
rules like GDPR or whether you can focus on your North American perspective or whatever it might be, know the law. Okay. And that actually requires investment. It's not a, it's not an easy thing. In other laws, you, you can kind of know them without, you know, in with five minutes of work at most on privacy, the laws are pretty subtle. So you, it's worth the investment. Okay. Second, think through, um, if our customers knew about our use of data in this way, how would they react? Simple question. Would they be like, oh yeah, of course. Uh, or would they be upset by it? And if they'd be upset by it, then you know, this is, there's no, you know, this requires some subjective analysis. There's not like a, okay, you know, if it's a four, they'll be upset. And if it's three, they won't be. Uh, if they'll be upset by it, ask why and think through, can you mitigate? Uh, think through, you know, Solution number one is don't do it. Solution number two is do it in a way that they, if you can figure out ways they wouldn't be upset. Solution number three is tell them about it, like ask for permission. And there's a whole you know, bunch of categories of, um, um, of you know, once you know the law, making sure your cust- you, know, you don't end up upsetting your customers in a way that, um, you know, that in the long run hurts your business. And I say customers, but sometimes it's supplier data or employee data or others data too. Same kind of ideas. It's like the tried and true question that in project review, when I was working in the industry uh, prior to being a vendor, uh, I'd always ask the question uh, at product review saying, what happens if this makes the, you know, page three, the New York times. And if people kind of sat there and looked at each other and the room got really quiet, I knew instantly like, yeah, "Yeah, we probably shouldn't rethink this and brainstorm a little bit more because what we're talking about is is a little bit shady. And yeah, there's countless companies that have maybe not first or third page of New York times, but they've definitely been mentioned to a point where customers are like, yeah, I'm going to uninstall that app or I'm never going to, you know, purchase from this company again because yeah. I don't agree with this. Yeah. And I have one more topic I would like to yeah. chat about. Um, we're, we're coming up on time, but I think both you, Avi, and then Ben, maybe on the more infrastructure side, both of you are uniquely positioned to, to give insight on this. And it come, came from your talk at Stanford where you talked about the difference between electricity and steam engines and how when electricity was first implemented in a factory setting, it took about 40 years to reach over 50% usage in factories nationwide. And this is because you had to reconfigure the factory, you had to change tooling, uh, all sorts of things like that. So zooming out a bit, let's consider ML is electricity. Where are we in that typical timeline of this back and forth between new use case generation, relevant technology for that use case generation, and the initial innovation of ML. Where are we in this sort of historical period of a disruptive technology? Great. So uh, just on the history, uh, Edison's light bulb patent was 1880. So you got to think of that as like day one of electricity in terms of clear commercial potential. Um, and it's the 1920s. It's a little over 40 years later that we saw most households and most factories adopting. And so for AI uh, ML, it feels like we're in the 1890s in some sense. So we, you know, there's lots of people who see the potential of the technology, um, but we haven't figured out what the factory of the future looks like, what the organization of the future looks like. There's been a, a couple of exceptions, but for the most part, we just don't know. Now, that doesn't mean it's another 30 years until we get there uh, because there's a lot more people thinking about it. And we can benefit from our understanding of history to recognize that we need to, to innovate and um, build a new kind of organization. And so uh, in terms of where we are, it feels like we're really pretty close to the beginning. Um, but I do think change can come fast, at least to particular industries, uh, once we recognize what that, what that organization of the future looks like. Once we recognize things like Machine learning is prediction technology. Okay, so think about it as a prediction machine. Uh, predictions are useful because they help us make better decisions. It's a piece two. Um, but predictions aren't the whole decision. So they end up allowing us to reframe how decisions work. So, um, and then to say, well, in almost every company, decisions need to be coordinated. 
Decisions don't occur in isolation. And so the innovation is going to be thinking through how can we change the way we make decisions and how can we build new groups of decision-making, new groups of decisions that take advantage of uh, coordinated technology. In the book, we talk about, uh, in the book, this book, The Empowered Prediction, um, we talk about uh, a whole bunch of examples, first on this decoupling the prediction for the rest of the decision. So uh, you know, once you have once you have a prediction in place, it actually can change who makes decisions. So you talk about, um, I remember there was, there was a story, it wasn't entirely true, or it was almost entirely not true, but there was a story that was making the rounds about four years ago saying Amazon was hiring their, was firing their warehouse workers automatically. They had an AI in their warehouses that was firing their workers. Okay? And the story like in the press was things like, well, you know, over the course of the day, there was a camera watching you and you get a score. And at the end of the day, uh, if your score fell below some threshold, you'd get an email saying you were fired. Okay? Not happening. Didn't happen. Never happened. But, but let's even take that story as true. Okay. It's still not an AI doing the hiring or the firing in this case. It's somebody at headquarters saying, we don't trust our warehouse managers to do their HR decisions. We're going to use AI to take those HR decisions away from the managers of the warehouses and centralize them so that we at headquarters can decide what a good performer looks like and who and you know, sort of how to think about the scoring and what threshold actually gets you uh, a threat or an email or um, a negative consequence. So it's uh, so point number one is going to re you want to be thinking through uh, new kinds of decisions that you can move decision making across time and place because of because of AI. And then around coordinated decisions, there's there's lots of different examples there, but uh, the essence of it is just because you have a great prediction in one part of your company. Uh, if no one else knows what you're doing, you might be better off just ignoring it. And so you need to think through how do you uh, bring everything together? And again, I'll use another Amazon example, top of mind today. Um, they, they make, there's a recommendation engine. Every time you go to Amazon, they sort of make some recommendations of what, uh, what uh, you might buy. 20 years ago, that recommendation engine for almost everybody, said you should buy the Da Vinci Code. Okay. No matter who you were, they said, well, it's the most popular book. They're largely selling books at the time. And everybody got the same recommendation. And they didn't have to worry about it because the other decision that was coordinated with the recommendation, which is did they have an inventory, was reliable. They just made sure they had tons of copies of the Da Vinci Code. So no matter who came in, you said, okay, buy the Da Vinci Code. And then if you bought it, it was in inventory and they could send it right to you. Um, today, they have a recommendation engine that recommends all sorts of things. But in order to make that work, they also have to have a good prediction tool on the inventory side to figure out what demand's gonna be. And the recommendation engine has to be coordinated with the decisions on what to hold an inventory and what to ship. That's actually a much harder task. And they still struggle with it in various places. So sometimes there's a recommendation and they don't have it in inventory. And you're like, why do you suggest something to me that's not gonna be shipped for a month or two? Um, so the the challenges in using a prediction, even if you have an excellent prediction in one part of the organization, depend on your ability to coordinate what's going on in the rest of the organization, like the other decisions along with it. And that's a sort of challenge in sort of rethinking what things look like. That's a really good analogy, which leads into my answer on this topic. Yeah. Uh, when you're talking about Amazon and, and the complexity of systems involved in, in solving that problem, uh, a lot of people don't realize what that system is that Amazon built, even though their infrastructure runs on it now. It's AWS. AWS is that solution to that exact problem. That's what they had to eventually build. So all of the services that exist within Amazon Web Services is to solve that problem, that scale. It, it's I've always just found that fascinating. Uh, a lot of the, the tech that was built to do that, it's monumental. Uh, and it's disruptive. It's a massive disruptor to industry as well. But to, to follow on with the, the infrastructure question that you asked, Michael, uh, on this, this topic about where are we right now, I'll piggyback on your uh, answer, Avi, with uh, timelines associated with uh, electricity. 
I would 100% agree that we're kind of in that 1890s prior to the the 20th century start. Um, I would say that (coughs) companies that are adopting AI right now that don't have to retool a factory but are building a new factory right now or are starting something in their garage, it's far easier for them to adopt this. Absolutely. But if we were to take that that analogy, move it forward 40 years from the 1880s to the 1920s and say, what would the automotive industry look? What would Henry Ford's factory look like without electricity? If that was all steam powered, everything in there, how long would it take to retool that factory uh, and that entire industry to use electricity? It would take a while. And we have companies right now that are, they have petabytes of data uh, and their industries have been around for, you know, prior to the 1880s, some of these companies and them adopting new technology is just slower because they're huge. They're an ocean liner trying to stop on a dime in the middle of the ocean. Uh, it's just, you can't do that. They're not a speedboat like a small startup is. Um, they'll eventually get there. They have to, or they'll go the way of the dinosaur. Like it's just inevitable. But I wanted to add one more point that I was thinking of is the adoption of AI and its utilization as a general tool that is ubiquitous throughout industry. I think eventually we'll get to a point where it's December 7th, 1941 in industry. And what did that do to the adoption of electricity and its use case in factories? All of a sudden we could retool an entire, you know, factories and assembly lines throughout the United States and Canada. Um, so we were, we were very close allies uh, during that conflict, but being able to produce, you know, 600 aircraft a month from something that prior to that, that need and that necessity, we were doing one one aircraft every two months. And necessity is the mother of invention. And I think pressure from industry in general, pressure of economics in the world across all industries based on whether you're, you're adopting this or not. Are you able to leverage the power of, of solving problems at scale? I think that's the, uh, the economic World War II of industry. And I think it is coming sometime. That's crazy. All right, well, I'll, I'll stay tuned for economic World War Seven. <laughs> I guess three. Um, so, so I'll quickly wrap, and then we can have a bit of a call to action. So we talked a lot about uh, high-level AI and how it is related to economics. And there are a few problems that we see with AI for the future. One is AI replicating humanity at scale. And this perpetuates systematic biases that are part of humanity today. So we either need to correct them or get creative in how to eliminate those biases. Uh, AI also might replace the fun work. This is something that people don't always think about, but if chat GPT can write books, authors are, (laughs) are out of business. And then also there could be a potential monopoly on AI. Um, Historically, a lot of people hold a little power, and AI might be no different. Um, but that said, there's hope. There's some opportunities. Um, if you're maybe a smaller organization or just an individual person, some areas to look for are tooling, uh, data, and then complements to predictions. So you can sort of think about what can you do with a prediction and then try to develop based on that. And then one actionable point is that when thinking about sensitive data, uh, it's good to first think about what does the law say, and then next, what would happen if this issue was on the front page of the New York Times? Uh, would customers be upset? And then you can act accordingly. So those were a couple nuggets. Avi, if people want to reach out to learn more about your books and research, where should they go? Uh, Twitter or LinkedIn. Um, I'm, and there aren't a lot of Avi Goldfarbs in the world, so you can you can look me up and, and find my website pretty easily. Amazing. All right. Well, this has been absolutely fascinating. Um, thank you, Avi, for joining. And it's been Michael Burke and my co-host. Ben Wilson. I would just like to add, if you haven't already, please check out these two books. Not only are they excellently written, uh, 
some of the thoughts and ideas and analogies that are within there will resonate with, I think, not only lay people, but also for like serious in the weeds ML practitioners to think about your entire like discipline and domain in a completely different way. Um, I'm, I'm planning on reading them, like each of them several times because uh, uh, they're just so re- well written. So definitely check them out. They're on Amazon. Um, so I'll just jump not in that here. expensive. Uh, 28 bucks uh, for the, the most recent one uh, if you want to, to get it on Amazon today in hardcover. And those are powering prediction and prediction machines. Let's make sure we get that. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks, Ben. Good call. All right. Well, until next time, it's been Michael Burke and... And Ben Wilson. Have a good day, everyone. Take it easy.